0: Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. Those are the words of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you're listening to this show, which is church politics, you may have heard of him. And someone else you may have heard of is our brother Michael Weir, who tweeted this message out. Uh, last week he said we need to tone down the language and accusations in our policy debates and change will only happen if we police our own side if we police our own side well brother where those were wise words you want to tell the people uh what you were thinking about when you you tweeted that out
1: yeah justin so i had tweeted i think earlier that day or or, or the day before about uh the republican tax reform effort and specifically it's called to repeal the adoption tax credit the adoption tax credit is policy that's near and dear to my heart uh i i'm on the board of bethany christian services which is a christian adoption agency and I, i worked on adoption when i was in the white house and so i i have some pretty strong feelings about the subject and and shared some of those um but uh uh sort of in response to those those tweets and as sort of news about republican uh the the House Republican tax reform effort became more public and more reported um i started to notice some really um i i thought over the top and unjustified language and um and uh, even in response to my own tweets um uh, I got responses that suggested, uh, you know, that they were that Republicans were were hypocrites for opposing the adoption tax credit without ever specifying what what the basis of it. Like, you aren't just a hypocrite because you oppose something; you're a hypocrite because you do something that's that's contrary to your stated convictions. And for me, all well, Republicans are um, have have feelings about about taxes and have feelings about the role of government and so i thought uh you know i, I could i could sh- i could share something about the 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 rhetoric that we use in politics on a whole range of topics but maybe i'd have uh maybe my contribution to the conversation would mean uh, a, a bit more if it was on a policy that was near and dear to my heart uh, i will fight for the adoption tax credit uh till uh, uh till to till after the fight's over i'll keep on fighting until uh, after the decisions made but we need to learn how to have policy debates um on the level of policy without immediately taking it to questioning people's motivation calling them hypocrites saying they hate families um look i'm gonna i'm gonna believe that uh th- without any additional knowledge of what the internal dialogue was like on the house gop side that that they uh, decided to put the adoption tax credit on the cutting room uh, uh floor because um because they needed to save money and thought that the what they were able to do th- uh Uh, And What they were able to keep in the package was justified repealing the adoption tax credit. Now, uh, Justin, I completely disagree with them. We could walk through the tax reform package a little bit, but they they found money to cut taxes uh, for corporations and keep in... Uh, uh, certain loopholes for uh big business. So I think they could have found the money for the adoption tax credit. But I'm going to make that argument on the basis of policy, and that, that was really my point.
0: Strong quote, quote, brother. I, I thought that was good. Um, it got spread around quite a bit, and I was glad to see that as well. And, and here are my thoughts on just policing your own side. You we know, just call that PYOS. Yeah. Um, first in order to be able to police your own side, I think there's a few things that you have to do. Number one, unfortunately many of us are are in a state of denial and don't really want to recognize that there's anything to police on our side. Right? So, so the first thing we need to do is admit that our side has a problem. We have to get past that state of denial and understand that you can't blame everything on the other side. If we're going to police who we are, then we have to make sure that we first get past the denial and admit that there are some issues that need to be corrected on our side. Yeah. Uh Number two, after we get past that portion of it uh and we can identify some of the issues that need to be corrected, we, we have to be able to think critically about our side generally. So you have to be open to it, but then you have actually have to critique your side honestly. And that just does not happen enough. Um, but I think there's some biblical, you know, uh, background for, for us doing that. If you look at Jesus's pedagogy or his method of teaching, you'll see that he didn't just instruct the disciples by simply critiquing others. So, of course, he talked about the Pharisees. He talked about the Romans, but he also talked about the disciples and critiqued them. Hmm. Right. He, he knew that they couldn't build any character. They couldn't grow um, into who he needed them to be until they were critiqued themselves until they had to look at themselves and understand what needed to be corrected. This was tough love. And, and I just cannot understand how some groups, whether it be some ideologies, some parties, some races, some nationalities have come to believe that we shouldn't be critiqued. And that Mm. to critique someone is to do them a disservice. And I think it's the other way around. If I critique you in love, then I'm actually doing you a favor. And if you critique me in love, you're doing me a favor. I don't see how people grow. I don't see how groups grow and mature without being able to receive constructive critiques. Now, not every criticism is constructive, but we should be able to see those that are and and learn and grow from it. Uh, Cutting ourselves off from that, and we got into this a little bit last week, cutting ourselves off from critiques is just not helpful. And I really hope that that idea gets removed um, from some of the spaces where it's somewhat prevalent. The next thing is after you've critiqued your side, um, honestly, I think you have to be courageous enough to, to vocalize it. Uh, there are people, right? There, there are people who say, you know what? I do see the issues, but the next step of actually vocalizing it. Well, that's where I get into some trouble, right? Because, yeah, right. Especially when it comes to the party side of things, you come out and you make a, a strong critique, you're automatically a traitor. Uh, you're automatically someone who doesn't care about the party, who wants to help the other side. And so it does take a great deal or a good deal of courage to come out and speak in that manner. But especially as Christians, that should be par for the course. Uh That's something that we should do um when needed. And, you know, the consequences are they're going to be what they are. So you count the cost and you do what you have to do. Right. Lastly, I would say this. Um, We have to realize that if we're blind to issues on our side or we simply refuse to correct issues on our side, then we won't have any credibility to correct the other side.
1: That's right. <laughs> no yes. one's
0: going to listen to you if you don't correct yourself. It's almost like if you have some kids that are really, really, really bad. Right. All kids do bad stuff. But if you have kids that are just all <laughs> over the place, no discipline, don't listen to you, don't do anything it's going to be hard for you to tell somebody else how to raise their kid.
1: <laughs> yeah. Kids, right.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. You just don't have the credibility. <laughs> you just don't have <laughs> any of the credibility to do that. So if you want to have that credibility, you need to do it on your own side first and clean up what's going on around you. Um, mm-hmm. And also there is no perfect time to do it. Someone will yeah. always say, Hey, wait a little longer. Cause you're going to hurt us. Well, That's right. Longer Cause you know, this just isn't the right time. There's never a perfect time. And so you just have to get in there and, and and do the right thing out of love, um, and and out of a spirit of trying to be constructive and make the whole discourse better.
1: Yeah, I think those are all good words, and especially that last point, right? Which is, you know, I, I think there's often the response like, "Look, you want to critique our own side, but uh, you know, for the for the other guys, it's war, and unless we realize mm-hmm. that it's war, then uh, you know, we're going to keep on giving them victories and, and, you know, just, uh, put in the, in the, you know, in the, in the partisan political context. Um, I, I don't think the Democrats problem, and I'm a Democrat. I don't think the Democrats problem is that we, we've, uh, been too reflective, that we've been too self critical, you know, like, like I don't think that's, that's been a big problem. Actually, and you alluded to this, Justin, it's actually through self critique. Um, that, that you're able to improve and evolve and, and get better and get stronger and make sure that your, your blind spots are, are limited. And what I hear in the, in these tribal polarized times is like this. No, we don't have, we don't have time for that. This is, uh, uh, we need to take out the other side and then maybe we could, uh, you know, uh, be, uh, uh use better rhetoric or uh or or be more uh be more self critical and more inclusive but but right now we need to we need to recognize this is battle and you know what I'd like to say is you know, maybe it's that's maybe it's that approach that is that is limiting you in the first place
0: <laughs> yeah and I, I, it's also a tool of manipulation i, I believe oh, yeah. that the parties use that very often to manipulate people and to keep themselves from being accountable if I can right. convince you that anytime you critique me or critique our group, that you're being a turncoat or, or, or you're Judas, then you're just not going to do it even when it needs to be done. And so for right. Christians who are out there who are trying to be thoughtful, who, who can see how bad our discourse is today and really want to make a change, the first thing you can do is turn around, look in the mirror, look at the folk, your peers around you and be brave enough to make that critique of how you can do things better. Cause honestly, that's what's in your control more than anything you can't really control the other side and again, you won't have the credibility, credibility excuse me to do that unless you know we can have some thoughtful conversations uh amongst ourselves
1: yeah absolutely that's good
0: so the next so i i the conversation about policing your own side really brings us into this co- this what happened uh last week with Donna Brazil many of you it may does, present, it does uh, yeah. Donna Brazil went all the way in. And when I mean all the way, I, when I first saw the article, I sent it to I sent it to Michael. He had just read it like, are you did, did I just read this? Is I want to make sure this isn't some kind of hoax or something. <laughs> he was in a political article that was entitled inside Hillary Clinton's secret takeover of the DNC. And she didn't hold anything back. So she was she wrote the article. It was, uh, I, I guess, part of or what's going to be discussed in her new book that's coming up. But she didn't hold any punches. I mean, if you go in there, she talked about how Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the um DNC chair before uh Don- Donna Brazil took over. She said she wasn't a good manager. She said she was a bad fundraiser and that she allowed the Clinton's uh Brooklyn headquarter Clinton campaign Brooklyn headquarters office uh to do whatever they wanted to. She didn't hold back from saying some things about uh President Obama. She said that he left the party in a lot of debt and she thought that was somewhat irresponsible about how that went down but the biggest bombshell was really her talking about how the hillary clinton campaign took over the democratic national committee and this was during the primary which would be extremely unethical now i want to be clear she didn't think anything illegal went on but she was uh she was very clearly saying that she thought it was unethical the way that they took over the party and that it very well could have had a negative effect on Bernie Sanders. And she had conversations with Bernie Sanders. And after she got off the phone with Bernie, uh, she broke down in tears because she felt so bad about what had happened. Uh, Michael, talk to us about what, you, what your thoughts on the article and just the the fallout from all that's happened over those over the course of the last few days.
1: Well, look, I mean, Donna is a elder stateswoman of the party. So, you know, there's been a whole lot of talk about people telling her that she, you know, like you said, this isn't the right time. How could you do this? Listen, from my perspective, Donna Brazile, who, for those who don't know, Donna uh, uh, was the campaign manager for Al Gore's campaign in 2000, uh, has been interim director of the DNC now uh, several times. She she's a stateswoman of the party. Donna can say what she wants when she wants. <laughs> so True. so first let me let me clear that out of the way. And I'm I'm a little like um I, I'm uncomfortable with those trying to put Donna Brazil in, in her place. So so let's let's say that to start. Um a second, uh I I think it's right. It uh it's uh, what makes it unethical is that the DNC was asserting and insisting the whole time that they were unbiased? So, um, uh, if if the party was was clear and upfront, or if people within the party were clear and upfront, that look, we think Hillary Clinton's going to be a better standard bearer for our party, and we, you know, we, we aren't going to, we're not uh, robots here. We're not going to uh, pretend like we could be unbiased about the fate of the party that. That, that is us organizationally <laughs> um th- that would be one thing but uh, that wasn't how it played out uh the sanders campaign repeatedly expressed concerns about the role the dnc was playing and repeatedly <laughs> the dnc acted like bernie was um trying to uh trying to be manipulative and trying to be um uh, tr- trying to uh, insert doubt into the into the process when you know, based on Donna's report um, and, and based on some of the reporting that's come out, uh, you know, it, it clearly looks like the DNC was putting its thumb on the scale, at, at least, uh, if not more than that. And then the the last thing I point out is in another report based on Donna's book, she said that she um, she actually considered putting the wheels in motion for. Uh, to replace Hillary Clinton after she had a bout with pneumonia um so so this was in the fall this was after the convention um and and, and that's been something that's um you, you know Donna had had the right to 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 write that if that's true um it certainly doesn't help um move the party uh move the party's vision forward to <laughs> Uh, this Tuesday's elections, which I know we'll talk about the midterms in 2020. Um, I mean, frankly, when I heard it, um, she said that she was considering, uh, she thought Joe Biden or Cory Booker would have been better candidates. And, you know, I agree. Uh, and so, you know, my initial reaction was just like, wow, like we were that close to not having President Trump and having, having, <laughs> having someone like Vice President Biden or, or someone like Senator Cory Booker, uh, as president. Like, you know, so I immediately went to the, the different histories that could have played out. Um, uh, I, I don't think that that's very helpful for, for the party right now when there are so many big challenges ahead, but, uh, but overall, the DNC is going to have to go through some. Uh, this is not going to settle. I think two or three weeks ago, Justin, we talked about the big debate in Las Vegas that the DNC was going through, and how Tom Perez was having to um, having to make some some serious uh, some serious changes none of that's going to quell down. There's going to be even more suspicion now about moves that Tom Perez is making and others to wrest control from, from Sanders folks. So uh, the the party continues to be in disarray.
0: Yeah, it's been, it's been tough. And to your point, this didn't make it any easier. Um, Some people have said that, you know, that basically the DNC rigged the primary. I think that's too strong just yeah. say it's it was rigged It's too strong yeah. because it almost implies that they didn't give uh Sanders all his vote votes or something like that. Right, right, right. Doesn't sound like that's what happened. Uh to say it was a takeover, I think is more um accurate. Um but but these criticisms of Donna Brazil have been tough, tough to swallow in a way because there were people who immediately, once, you know, ten minutes after this came out, were already trying to attack her credibility. <laughs> And I just want to double down on some of the things that you said. Uh, Number one, let's keep a few things in mind. Donna Brazile was the DNC interim chair. She was asked to be the interim chair because Debbie Wasserman Schultz was forced to resign over this very issue. Uh So we knew this was an issue before this statement even or this article even came out. So for people to act like it's not an issue to say, oh, this just happens. It's not really that big of a deal. You know, the party can't really do anything. People want to deal with the rigged part. So the people that don't want the DNC to take any, you know, responsibility for this, they say, well, it wasn't rigged. Okay. Even if it wasn't rigged, this was unethical and it was completely unfair to the Sanders campaign. Uh, And there's some people that just don't want to, you know, just don't want to hear that and just don't want to talk about it. Who was in the best position to even make a statement about uh, the state of the party at that time? Donna (laughs) Brazil, right? She was in the position as the DNC chair. Uh, and she has always be- been considered a serious and credible professional. Yeah. Uh, let's be clear about that. Uh, she's always been w- well respected in the Democratic Party. And she has stronger Democrat credentials than 99.999% of right. all the de- yeah. Democrats in yeah. politics. Uh-huh. Let's be very clear about that before we start just going to attack her and uh, talking about how she's hurting the party and how she doesn't know what yeah. she's talking about. We had a lot of people who went from you know, believe black women to believe them only if they're not going oh. against the DNC. Seriously. I mean, that's the truth. That's let's be serious truth. about this. Let's be, let's that's be honest truth. and consistent with what we're saying. This is somebody who, as you said, Michael has earned the right to say whatever she wants to say about the party. Don is uh, not new.
1: Don she's is not, not new. You just can't do.
0: It. <laughs> yeah. He is not new to this at all. So let's keep those things in mind and we cannot act like this didn't matter. Even if even if it wasn't rigged, right, because that's the easy that's a that's a good straw, man. And we can argue against that. But even if it wasn't rigged, the Clinton campaign controlled the party's finances in the primary. Right. It was giving the party an allowance. Do you know how much leverage that gives you on so many different levels to be in control of the party mechanism in that way? Basically, they got to choose the communications director and all the other staff which means they were controlling the party's messaging when you had another person who was running within that party in the primary that stuff matters
1: but right so just to be and i don't know if you'll agree with this justin so let me say it and you you could respond if you if you disagree but uh you know just because there are so many uh uh you know crooked hillary and all this stuff uh in my view the Clinton campaign wasn't in the wrong. they had every right it, you know if the d n c was gonna roll over for them like this uh I can't say that I don't think that there's anything unethical on hillary clinton's side <laughs> the d n c needed money. It is not unusual for a campaign to give the d n c money and and they they leveraged the weakness of the d n c and their power to to get uh to get as much uh control as they as they could um so i mean this is a this is a dnc issue this is dnc that didn't provide the transpare uh the transparency to the sanders campaign or to the public about the extent of their their deal with the clinton campaign um but i just i just want to make sh- you, you know cuz anytime you bring up unethical some yeah, people sorry. jump people jump right directly to oh there go the clintons again i don't I- i'm not sure if any uh, any campaign that could have done what the Clinton campaign did would not have. And, right, this is all because it, it, it was possible because Sanders is not a Democrat and didn't have ties to the party like Clinton did. Um, uh, you know, I, I, if she tried to do this in 2008 versus versus even a, a, a fresh face like Obama, I don't think it would have been possible. But I just wanted to interject that this is a DNC issue.
0: Yes, this is primarily a DNC issue and the way they handle it cuz you and both you and I both know that campaigns do what they have to do to win. And so it's very true that very few campaigns would say, "No, no, we could take over the party and use the party to help us win, but we're not going to do that." Very <laughs> few if any any campaigns would ever do that. So I I do agree agree with you in that regard. Uh but we just have to step back. You know, we everybody wants to give a hot take on what happened. We do have to keep in mind that um Maybe Donna Brazile, to some extent, was trying to absolve herself a little bit or she, you know, she may have felt some kind of way about how things ended up, because we do have to recall that there were some answers to debates that may have come through her. Clinton, uh, yep. And so we can't forget those things. And we're going to be fair. We're going to talk about all of this. But the idea that everybody can come out of the peanut gallery and criticize Donna Brazile like she doesn't have the standing to do what she did. She absolutely has the standing to do what she did. And, um, and like
1: she's and like she's the first person who's been trying to sell a book, you know, like, right, right, you know, right, right. so, so that, that's the other thing. Right. She has a book. She has a book coming out. Her her publisher has the right to release quotes. So that's all part of this. But uh, but there, we have to deal with the
0: substance that's there. Yeah. And let's stop acting like this is a cult. She she said <laughs> what she had to say. Right. She yeah. said what she had to say. She has the right to say it. She has standing to say it. And she's still more credible and has better credentials than most everybody out there. So right. as we criticize, as we evaluate this situation, let's just keep those things in mind. Yeah.
1: D- well, Justin, I, a part of all, part of the attacks that came Donna's way to me is re- just a reflection. And Democrats do this often, which is they sort of misdirect their anxiety. Um, and Democrats are feeling anxious about this election in Virginia and mm. right, rightfully so. Uh, Uh, polls have showed considerable tightening in this race between Ed Gillespie, who's a former Republican chairman, uh, uh, both nationally, and then he he served as Republican chairman of the Virginia uh, uh, Party, uh, and Ralph Northam uh, in Virginia. And, uh, you know, when the Democratic nominee in 2016 didn't run, didn't fare so well, Hillary Clinton still beat Trump by six plus points in Virginia. Uh, and so uh, one would think with the wave of sort of anti-Trumpism uh, with the fact that you, uh, that, that you have a uh, a candidate who's not, who's not new to politics and Ralph Northam, um, uh, you, you would think that this would be a shoe in, but these polls are showing it within margin of error and the election is on is on tuesday and justin if 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 ed gillespie pulls this out uh you're gonna see the democratic party uh, i think 2016 sort of caught everyone off guard uh if if ralph northam loses this race um democratic party uh is is going to go into complete convulsions um uh, my concern though, <laughs> Justin, is that they're going to go in convulsions for all the wrong reasons. And we're already starting to see sort of the excuses and just wrong headed analysis come up. Part of it being that it's Donna Brazil's fault that she's distracted the Democratic party from being able to win in Virginia, which is nonsensical. Um, but also this narrative that Ralph Northam has just been is too centrist. Mm. He, he's too centrist of a guy. And I just want to be clear. Uh, th- this is hand handpicked candidate. This is a man who was doing, uh, uh, rallies outside of abortion clinics during the primary. Um, this is not, this is not a moderate. This is not Tim Kaine circa early 2000s. This is not Mark Warner. This is Cray Deeds 2010 who got beat by, uh, Bob McDonald. That's what this is. Um, and so, Justin, just how are you seeing this? How are you seeing this race shape up? What What do you think? Uh, what do you think it means for the the the? It's the first significant election for the Republican Party under Trump, and it's the first significant election for the Democrats as as a you know a nationwide opposition party.
0: Yeah, uh, the fact that it's this close in the eleventh hour already says something. So even if Northern pulls it out. It should remove the idea from progressives and Democrats generally that we're going to win by default, right? That we're just going to win because Trump is so bad. No, you're going to win and win safely and win around the country when you can articulate a message. So I think we all agree based on who these two people are, this shouldn't really be this close. And based on the climate and what's going on with the presidency and that administration, it really shouldn't be this close. And the fact that it is this close, whether he pulls it out or not. We should pull from this sense of urgency to be better defined and have uh, some principles that people can easily see in our talking points and in our policy uh, from here on out, because there are not there aren't going to be any more easy wins. Uh, if, if Trump hadn't changed all the rules, we would expect that because he's doing so poorly, that Democrats wouldn't have any problem winning a race like this. You're replacing a Democrat. Uh, it shouldn't it shouldn't be uh, this hard, but it is. Yeah. And that should tell us something either way. So I'm not exactly sure. I'm not as close to this one as you are, uh, being in a DMV. Yeah. But it looks like one that, you know, Ralph Northam should have been way far, you know, far ahead. Uh, I, from what I understand, it's gotten really ugly. Um, and this was a race that started off as being fairly civil. We had some, some ads that have just been <laughs> terrible and really adding to the discourse that we talk about, uh, so much. I know the Latino Victory Fund had an ad out against Gillespie. Uh, showing a truck, uh, that had a confederate flag on it and an Ed Gillespie bumper sticker sticker. And this truck was trying to run over, uh, was trying to run down, uh, children of color. Yeah. It's tough, you know, and, and, yes. and, and Gillespie, believe me, he has plenty of ads and plenty of things that went on on his side that have just been outside of what we, sh- we should consider acceptable, uh, in right. politics. It should be about the policy there's always going to be some things here or there that people want to highlight in comparison. We understand that there's going to be some negative campaigning, but it sounds like to me in the, at the end of this race has gotten out of control and we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I don't know how much things like, you know, Northern removed the photo of uh, Justin Fairfax, who's an African-American candidate candidate for lieutenant governor who, which means they're supposed to kind of be running together. He removed them from a campaign flyer. He, there was some pushback uh, on that. I'm not yeah. sure how much all that affects what's going on. Something else we have to keep in mind is that polls these days just have not been as accurate as they used to be. Right. So it's yeah. really hard to tell where the race is at. And I'm going to lean on you to let me know uh, w- what your feelings are on w- uh, what way this will go.
1: Well, Justin, I think it's going to be close. I think it's going to be closer than it should have been. If if I had to predict uh, Northam, will pull it out. Uh, and, Uh, and eke out this victory, Uh, but it's it's unfortunate Uh, we we could have had a different kind of campaign, and instead this campaign has really descended to the depths over the last few weeks. You've had Ed Gillespie uh really appealing to some of the worst elements of the Republican base in order to I think ensure that his turnout is what it needs to be. We've had uh Northam uh both run this two prong campaign of just Making clear how hateful he thinks Gillespie is, um, and really driving that home while also backtracking on some of his earlier commitments. So, uh, at the same time, he's hitting Gillespie for being hateful. Uh, he's, he's saying that, uh, Confederate memorials should be local decisions now and that, uh, he's, he opposes sanctuary cities. Uh, and so it's led to this really, uh, really conflicted, um, Difficult, almost reminiscent of 2016, in that I don't know many people who are anxious to vote. Uh, I certainly won't be voting for Ed Gillespie. Uh, I think his campaign had some real potential, but I've just been I've been deeply disappointed by some of the appeals he's made in the last month. But but Ralph Northam hasn't made this hasn't made this easy for for too many Virginia voters, and we're we're gonna see uh, if, if that's if that's gonna cost him on Tuesday.
0: Yeah, you hit it on the head. The the voters just aren't buying vote for us because Trump is bad. All that stuff is out the window. The game has changed. People are viewing it differently. And you're going to have to earn those votes. You're going to have to earn the votes of people who don't normally vote for you, even in a even in a state where you had been running the state for some time and you should be winning and you may not have a great candidate on the other side. And he's made a lot of mistakes you have to have a message and that message needs to be clear. And that message needs to include the flourishing of as many people as you can. And for some reason, the democratic party just hasn't caught on to that. I'm hopeful that they will. I'm hopeful that candidates will, will see that I need to touch the people. I need to see their hurt and I need to come up with solutions for that hurt. Now, all of this is a conversation really about democracy. And one of the most important parts of democracy is Journalism last week we mm. talked about some of our favorite commentators and op ed writers, and today we want to point out a few of the journalists uh, that we like to follow just so you know who who are some of the people that we respect and that we think do it the right way and I just want to say a few words about journalism in general because I truly believe that there is no democracy uh that there is no free people without free pr- free press a a free people yeah. must have access to independent and trustworthy news. The people cannot hold those in power accountable without access to accurate information. And that's why all this is protected by our First Amendment. The Society of Professional Journalists has a code of ethics for journalism. And in the preamble of that code, it says this. It says, members of the Society of Professional Journalists believe that public enlightenment is the forerunner of justice and the foundation of democracy. Ethical journalism strives to ensure the free exchange of information that is accurate, fair, and thorough. An ethical journalist acts with integrity. And then it gives you four principles of journalism. The first principle of journalism is this. Seek the truth and report it. Sounds quite simple. Journalists should be honest and courageous in gathering, reporting, and interpreting information. Number two, minimize harm. Treat sources and subjects as human beings deserving of respect. Number three, act independently. These people work primarily for the people. They work primarily for our benefit, and so they shouldn't be acting on the behalf of any party or any particular ideology. And, la- and uh, lastly, be accountable and transparent. Uh, expose unethical conduct in journalism, even if that is within your own organization. Those are some basic principles of journalism. And as Christians, we should be rewarding and following those who abide by those principles. Uh, there's nothing more, better you can say about a journalist than that person is thoughtful, an objective and gives you the facts where they are and how they really are. So as we go into this back and forth, I want everybody to keep in mind, journalism is such an integral part, such an int- intricate, uh, integral part of our democracy. And so anyone who violates those principles or anyone who abides by them, we should realize that, and there should be consequences either way. So I'm gonna give my first, if you don't mind, uh, brother. Weird. Yeah. And I just want to kind of give mine as a shout out of remembrance uh, cause Gwen Eiffel, I think, is the yeah. prototype of an American journalist, uh, someone who gives the people the information they need and does it and did it in a way that was just, just awesome, just thoughtful and, and as objective as possible. And I really appreciate her. Many of you may remember her from PB, uh, PBS News Hour. Uh, she passed away last year and we lost, uh, quite a, a person of character and integrity. Um, she was always informed. She was always professional and objective and we will definitely, uh, we are definitely still missing uh, Gwen Ifill.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, as a Buffalo boy, you're tempting me to to uh, name Tim Russert here, <laughs> so, what you do, but, bro. but I'll, 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 uh, I'll just give Tim a shout out, but not, not, the, uh, not, not give him one of my, one of my slots. Uh, one of my, my first slot will go to, uh, Emma Green, Emma Green at the Atlantic, um, is is one of the best religion reporters, and there are uh, we've really seen uh, religion reporting um, uh, improve so much just over the last five years. You have great re- religion reporters at the Post and Sarah Pulliam and uh, Michelle Borstein, and you have uh, uh, at Time and Elizabeth Diaz. Uh, but but Emma Green is just someone who um really uh, dives into whatever subject area she's covering and is uh hits all the angles that I knew were there um and then always finds uh interesting facts that, uh that that help me to reevaluate how I thought about a subject she always uh, like you said she always treats uh though she's writing about with with care um, and with respect uh, and she she covers everybody um, uh, uh, across the religious and political spectrum and so uh, i I'm very grateful for uh, for the work that Emma Green at the Atlantic does uh, Emma actually just took a post um, in Israel she, she'll be reporting from Israel for the next year while also uh, uh writing about what's happening in the states but to, uh, it, she's she's
0: definitely one of my favorite journalists. Okay, good stuff. Well, I'm going to go with somebody who's actually been on this show and someone we both appreciate quite a bit and who is Eugene Scott. Uh, many of you okay. have seen Eugene Scott on CNN as a political reporter. You've read his work on the Washington Post and much of what we're going to be saying about all these people is going to be very similar because as we read, there's a certain framework that all journal- journalists have fit in. Yes, they have their own styles but do they give you the information in an accurate way? Do they give it to you in the best way they know how? And I think Eugene Scott is one of the top of his class in doing that and giving you um, the perspectives of people really helping you relate and humanize who he's, who he's speaking about. Um, and I've really learned a lot from his work. I've learned a lot uh, from the perspective that is provided through his work. And I'm thankful uh, for a brother that can really, put the put the information out there in a way that is accessible in a way that is clear and plain, but also that can be challenging to give you a view that you may not have thought about before and to help you think through certain issues. So Eugene Scott, thank you for all you do. And I would recommend that all those folks listening to church politics, uh, check him out, read some of his stuff, support him and push him up, man, because if we're supporting people from, for the right reasons, they'll do the right things. If we're supporting them for the wrong reasons, they'll start tweeting out stuff that's going to give them the most tweets, even if it's negative. So let's do yeah. it for the right reason.
1: Yeah, no, that's good. Eugene's a good, a good guy. I appreciate him as well. Uh, my my second um, is Vincent Cunningham at the New Yorker. And uh, Vincent is, uh, it, it's hard for me to describe what it is that draws me to his reporting. Uh, the first piece I read of his was he just spent some time at an Obama alumni gathering uh, after Trump was elected uh, and just sort of uh, or I'm sorry, it may not have been after Trump was elected, but it was it was uh, it was in the last few years. Um, and just the the skill of his writing, the the emotional depth of his reporting uh, just really hit me. And I decided I'm going to follow I'm going to follow this guy and i tell you everything he writes has uh just refreshing care and empathy uh and and knowledge and i feel like when i read him he brings something to the table while being objective he brings a perspective that uh, that, that i don't find anywhere else he seems to um to not be so burdened by the day to day sort of like political turmoil uh, he's always able to step outside of it a little bit. And so I would really encourage people to check out Vincent Cunningham at the New Yorker. He's probably been the reporter I found that has a bit, just, again, not to keep using the same adjective, but uh, been the most refreshing reporter that I've, I've I've found over the last three,
0: four years, for sure. Good stuff. My next one is going to be someone who everyone's fairly familiar with, but I thought it was important to bring someone like this up because we see a lot of people and and everyone says that the media may be biased one way or another, but someone who I think tries to transcend that as much as possible is Jake Tapper. Um, Yeah. I think he really goes out of his way to say, look, let me really, if there's someone to be questioned on either side, if there's an issue to be questioned on either side, let me approach it. And I've seen him do that on both sides. I appreciate it. I can't say that most of the people on his level always do it uh, as honestly as he does. Uh I, I, He goes out of his way from what I can tell to be objective, to give both sides and to expose both sides when something goes wrong. I don't think he always gets it perfectly. Uh There are some times that, that I disagree or think he could have come from a different angle that would have been uh more constructive. But in general, I'd like to say that uh, that Jake Tapper is someone who other up and coming journalists can look at and say that's the right way to do it, or at least he's headed in the right direction. Even at a time when I think we need to be honest, uh, brother, where sometimes we just don't see this. Sometimes right. it's almost OK to violate a few of those uh principles that I was talking about, Uh especially yeah. the act independently. I have seen right. on a number of occasions, I don't know how the whole, you know, the whole of, uh, you know, uh, groups of journalists start to talk about certain issues the exact same way and start to exclude <laughs> certain people <laughs> the exact same way. And this just came out of nowhere. I don't think that always comes out of nowhere. And so I do appreciate when a journalist has the courage to step outside of that, because I do think, especially when it comes to Christians, there are certain issues for Christians that journalists and others have made as things that should be outside of polite society, things that should be outside of the public square. And I think that has happened without a thorough debate in that regard. And it wasn't something that was decided by the people in some circumstances. It was something that was decided by the journalistic class or or others. Uh, I don't think that's fair and we see it all the time, but I think Jake Tapper is one of those people who tries to go against that to some extent. And I just want to say that I do appreciate that.
1: Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I appreciate Jake. Uh, 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 My last person is going to be Molly ball. Now Molly ball uh, is I think one of the best long-form political reporters in journalism. Uh, she just made the jump from the Atlantic to take a top position at Time, and she's just—I um, I- think—I think the Atlantic's going to miss her, and I think Time is going to be uh, realize uh, if they didn't already just how lucky they were to snag her. Uh, but Molly Ball uh, is uh, everything she puts out uh is uh again nuanced, objective, really gives you um uh insight into the political process in a way that's important um in a way that will if you if you read Molly's reporting consistently you will you will uh just through osmosis get a sense and a feel for political for the rhythm of politics and the way that political actors uh, I think and uh as Molly was clear in one of her most recent pieces uh uh I think her last piece for the atlantic um uh which was on uh democratic think tanks trying to figure out what went wrong in two thousand sixteen she 'll not only give you a sense of what they think but also uh help you get help you get into insight into how sometimes they could get things so wrong uh and so molly ball is is certainly. Um, is someone that whenever I get asked uh, at events or or by by folks, you know, who can I read to get a really good sense, both uh, on the Republican side, on the Democratic side of how how things are working, how things are developing, what the new ideas are. Uh, Molly Ball is one of the one of the top people I, I suggest.
0: That's good. I enjoy her, her work as well. Uh, I do think it's in depth and hitting on the right issues because one thing about journalists is choosing the right issues choosing the issues that people need to hear and that are relevant to the times and what's going on or sometimes introducing to people people to issues that they need to hear about uh so those are some great journalists and we hope you all are always reading are always searching for new thinkers and uh new perspectives just so that you you have an understanding of what's going on around you if we're going to be concerned and compassionate uh, about our neighbors, then we need to know what's really going on with them. And sometimes that comes in a form that we're not used to. Sometimes that means uh, us challenging ourselves and reading people that it may even hurt a little bit. It may strain us a little bit to to understand, yeah. but we as Christians, we have to make, uh we have to make that effort and we have to make sure that we're doing it in every way necessary so that we're taking care of our responsibility and our obligation as followers of Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah absolutely well justin i think i think that's i think we've covered a lot of territory uh it's it's going to be a very interesting week coming up here nbc news is reporting just tonight that uh Mueller has enough uh uh enough uh in his investigation to file charges against uh michael flyn who would be the first actual member of the of the trump administration uh, to uh, to have charges filed against him as part of Mueller's investigation, we have uh elections in Virginia and new jersey uh uh this tuesday uh so it's it's going to be and, and Republican tax reform efforts are going to continue to move forward and we 'll see how that evolves and so we'll have a lot to talk about next week hopefully uh on on this episode we've we've prepared you uh to navigate the week
0: ahead and uh any closing words, Justin. Yeah, I just want to send prayers out to the folks who were um affect who are going to be affected by this Sutherland Damn. Springs uh, shooting uh, out in Texas. I think it's right outside of San Antonio. Apparently, about twenty seven people were killed, um, maybe twenty or so injured, and this is just um, it's just sad. And we don't have the facts. We don't know who did it. We don't know why. We don't have the motivations. But what we do have is a God that tells us that we must be compassionate. and We must mourn with those who are mourning. So let's spend the next few days uh, doing that, not pointing the finger, not trying to figure out, you know, who's to blame, but making sure that we're there for the mourning and that we're um, addressing the evil that was on display uh, when the time comes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, everyone. Take care.
0: For the activists and graduates, I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment In the favelas and slums together with inhabitants It's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> the only thing good came out of Nazareth This is the groove, tell me, can yeah. you handle it? I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves I'm brave, I'm unchained, I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade oh, yeah.